Well, good morning. You can turn in your Bible to 2 Samuel chapter 6. And let's pray once more. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. The book of Psalms ends with this psalm, Psalm 150, and it goes like this. It's up on the screen. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud, clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. How good and fitting and life-giving it is for us, even for a moment, to take our eyes off of ourselves and to praise and worship and glorify the Lord our God. Now, I want us to contrast the call of Psalm 150 with a philosophy in our culture that is called expressive individualism. Expressive individualism says that my highest aim in life is to find out who I am as a unique individual and then express my inner desires as transparently and as genuinely as possible. Trevin Wax in his book, Rethink Yourself, says this, the look-in approach to life means that your purpose is to look inside yourself in order to discover who you truly are, to find what makes you unique, and then to take hold of your authentic self and emerge with it intact and uncompromised. The idea is to dig, dig, dig into your own self and to find out who you truly are deep down and then to come out to the world with that self whoever or whatever he or she or it is. In other words, you are the only you, so you do you. Just be yourself. Believe in yourself, for that's the place to start. Express yourself, for that's the place to end. Now, It's not wrong to try to figure yourself out. It's not wrong to be self-aware and to be clear about your unique personality and gifting and wiring and desires. It's not wrong to examine yourself and to look 
inward. But if that's all we do, we will be left dissatisfied or worse. In fact, expressive individualism leads to emptiness and despair. Why though? The Bible reveals that the more we look inward, the more we're going to find there what we don't want to find. We're going to find there what the Bible calls sin. We're going to find desires that are disordered and longings that are lustful. We're going to find shame and guilt and brokenness deep down. We're going to find that we actually can't trust our own intuitions and natural longings. So Jeremiah 17.9 says this. This is truth. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? But in 2 Samuel 6, King David gives us a better way. He is someone who has zeroed in on God, on his glory, on his worship, on his honor, on his presence. And what we'll discover is that the more that David focuses his thoughts and affections on God, the more he finds true joy and rest and shalom, the things we've all been looking for in the first place. You see, to be God-focused, this is the pathway to true and lasting joy. And incidentally, it's the best way to know yourself. 2 Samuel 6 is going to teach us that to be God-focused, this is the pathway to true and lasting joy. So let's dig into it. 2 Samuel 6, I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. In our, what we're going to be talking about today is worship. And I realize that when the Bible talks about worship, often it, it, it's talking about the whole of our lives, the entirety of our lives given over in service to God. But this morning, when I talk about worship, I'm talking about specifically about worship through prayer and singing. Okay, so let's look at 2 Samuel chapter 6, starting at verse 1. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000, and David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark." Uh, we learned last week about the kingdom. Pastor Dan preached uh, a sermon on the kingdom. And we saw how King David was finally receiving promises, fulfillment of promises he had waited years for. Promises of being king over God's people and God's place, under God's rule and blessing. In chapter 5, if you look at the very end of chapter 5, you'll notice that God's people are safe, they're at rest, their enemies are defeated, and they're in their place. But something was still missing. You see, you can experience relief 
from all of the threats around you and you can be really, really, really comfortable. But if you don't have God, there will always be a deep void. And so David's fundamental ambition is to welcome the presence of God into God's place among God's people. Then the kingdom has truly come. So what was this Ark of the Covenant? I have a picture of what it would have looked like. The Ark was a physical symbol of the presence of the Lord. The Lord is the personal name of the God of Israel. And he, if you look at verse 2, he sits enthroned on the cherubim. You can see the cherubim there in that picture. In other words, the Lord is the king who rules over all and who is worshipped by the greatest angelic beings. And what's amazing to me is that King David, after years and years of waiting to be king, he says, actually, I don't want to be king. I want another one to reign over Israel. And that other one is none other than God himself. He says, ultimately, I want God to reign over God's people. Psalm 132 reflects on the depths of David's desire for God to dwell in and reign from Jerusalem. Psalm 132 says, Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. David longed for the presence of God to be with God's people. So David had good intentions here, but something was a bit off. In his law, God gave clear instructions for how, if you go back to the picture of the ark, how this ark was to be transported. So listen to Exodus 25, 14 through 15. You shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. So the ark was to be carried by the Levites holding onto these poles. But here in 2 Samuel 6, you notice that the ark was placed on a cart. And the idea is that David and the people aren't listening to God and his word very carefully. But it gets worse. Let's keep reading. Look at verse 5. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it. For the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. 
And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. So the journey to Jerusalem begins well. David and a massive group of people are worshiping the Lord with celebration and with joyful praise. And yet, as we're going to see, this celebration of the Lord must not be flippant. Because the one they're worshiping is holy. And so touching the ark was strictly forbidden by God. Numbers 4.15 says, When Aaron and his sons have finished covering the sanctuary and all the furnishings of the sanctuary as the camp sets out, after that the sons of Kohath shall come to carry these, but they must not touch the holy things lest they die. And in verse 8 it is said that the Lord broke out against Uzzah. This is an unleashing of the anger of God against someone who broke his law and didn't fear him. And we need to just pause here and let this land on us. God, our God, the real God, the God of the Bible, he's infinitely holy. He has anger toward sin and toward unrepentant sinners. This isn't the only truth about God in the Bible, but it is a truth that we should not overlook. God, the real God, is a God of holiness. The real God is a God of justice. The real God is a God of wrath. David responds in two ways to the death of Uzzah. One response is emotional. He's angry. He's upset that Uzzah has died in this way. But the second and more lasting response is fear. He fears the Lord. He stands in awe of God now in a new and refreshed way. The second response is action. He says, if this is the way it is, I am not going to bring the ark into Jerusalem. It's too dangerous. And so he leaves the ark at the house of Obed-Edom. But thankfully, that's not where the story ends. Let's pick it up in verse 12. 2 Samuel 6, verse 12. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. Stop there. So David sees that fertility and flourishing and blessing were abounding for Obed-Edom and his family. And David sees this from afar and he says, well, if that's how it is for Obed-Edom, never mind. I'm taking the risk. 
I'm getting the ark. I'm bringing it to Jerusalem. And this is where the story really ramps up. David goes and gets the ark and brings it the rest of the way to Jerusalem, this time in the the proper way. Look at verse 13. They bore the ark. So now the Levites are carrying the ark with the poles, and there's a tone of great joy and celebration now. Did you know that God actually commands you to rejoice and be glad? To celebrate all that God is for us in Christ with praise and thanksgiving. To exult in God from our heart of hearts with deep and wide delight. God is so great that he is worthy of our highest happiness. But it's not flippant or casual joy in God that we're speaking of because God is infinitely holy. Dale Ralph Davis explains it like this. Fearfulness and gladness are held together. And I love this. Listen to what he says. In Yahweh's presence, you should both shudder and dance. I love that. So recall David's question in verse 9. You can look at it there in verse 9. How can the ark of the Lord come to me, this holy God? How can he come to me? So to put it another way, how can such a holy God come into the presence of a sinful people? We get the answer to that question in verse 13. Look at it there in your Bible. When those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. You see, the only way that the presence of God comes safely into our midst is if our sins are atoned for and covered through sacrifice. Through sacrifice comes forgiveness. And as forgiven people, we can worship the Lord with reverence and freedom and with all our might. The freedom that David experiences as a forgiven man is so refreshing and encouraging in this passage. It says, David danced before the Lord with all his might. Just imagine it. Imagine him there. I don't know if he was a good dancer or not, but he's dancing with all his might before the Lord. Look again at verse 15. They brought up the ark with shouting and with the sound of the horn. So just put yourself back there. Sacrifice, music, instruments, songs, celebration, dancing, leaping, shouting, joy, praise. Now imagine if David was just quietly walking behind the ark with kind of a blank expression on his face, that would be so wrong, wouldn't it be? See, it's actually irreverent not to celebrate. A song of praise is fitting for Christians. How degrading to God's greatness to come into his presence bored or even consistently merely somber. Think of all that God is. Think of all that God has done for you, Christian. 
and then rejoice and celebrate and sing. If you feel so led as we worship as a church, go ahead and raise your hands or clap or sing loudly or close your eyes or let the tears flow or kneel at your chair. You're a forgiven Christian who is free to worship God with all your might. My wife and I attended a conference called Sing, hosted by uh, Getty Music a few weeks ago. And it was a remarkable experience. If you have a chance to ever attend a Getty Sing conference, I would recommend doing that. But my wife Rachel took a picture while we were there of the auditorium as it was filling with people. If you're in the back, it might be hard to see, but it's a lot of people. Uh, over 8,500, in fact from 35 countries, gathered in one place to sing some of the most powerful songs to some of the most heavenly music I've ever heard in person. It was truly a taste of the reality of the joy of heaven. And at certain points, I stopped singing because there are people all around me who can sing way better than I can. I look around and there's people just with all their might, praising the Lord, singing, all hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. Or some amazing rendition of a mighty fortress is our God. And we're fortified on this hard journey on earth as Christians by having regular moments of worshiping God with all our might. So I ask you the question, I ask myself the question, what do we give all our might to? Part of the reason that we gather Sunday by Sunday here at New Covenant Bible Church is this. It's to be awakened again to the greatness of God so that we can turn our attention to him and truly praise him from our hearts. We don't have 8,500 people here from 35 different countries, but we do have rich songs of praise and remarkable musicians and worship leaders who every week lead us into the presence of God to praise him. But the way the story in 2 Samuel 6 unfolds, the climactic moment is actually not the praise. A track with me here. The climactic verse is actually verse 17. Look at it there in your Bible. Because the climactic moment does not focus on the people's praise, but on God's presence. Finally, the ark of God is now at rest in the city of David, in the tabernacle with sacrifices of atonement for sin and worship being offered to God. So here's, here's, the, here's what's going on. Jerusalem is set up to be a place not of expressive individualism, but of God-centered worship and joy. Now, finally, the kingdom of God has come because the presence of God is in its rightful place. And the right response to all of this is worship. Let's keep reading. Look at verse 17, second part of 17. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. And distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, 
both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed each to his house, and David returned to bless his household. Now stop there. I want you to notice one important thing in these verses about King David, and that is this. He's acting a lot like a priest. How so? First, look at verse 14. He's wearing a linen ephod, which is ordinarily a priestly garment. Second, what he's doing here with the people is he's, he's mediating between God and the people. Okay? He's, he's, he's taking the, the presence and the blessing of God, holy God, and he's, he's bridging the gap between God and the people. He's mediating. He, he's, he's, he's taking this and he's making a connection between God and the people. And in that way, he's serving as a priest. And it even says he blesses the people. Think about Numbers chapter 6 where the priests are called to put God's name on the people and say, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon you and give you peace. And David, this is the type of thing that David is doing. He's, he's acting like a priest here. Thirdly, he leads in offering the sacrifice. Now, he probably wasn't the one who was actually doing the sacrificing, but repeatedly it said that David sacrifices to the Lord. And so it's, it's showing that David was behind the sacrifices and it's showing that David was playing a priestly role. So David is king, but he's also like a priest. And we'll see David again playing a priestly role at a pivotal moment at the end of the book of 2 Samuel. But for now, we must not miss the foreshadowing here. The prophets will take this theme of king-priest and they'll look ahead to a day when a son of David will also be, will be both a king and a priest. See Psalm 110. And then about a thousand years after David, he arrives. Jesus, the priestly king or the kingly priest. So you say, well, why does that matter for me today in the 21st century? Here's why it matters. Without someone to mediate between us sinful people and a holy God, we are lost. We have no hope at all. Our only hope for salvation and eternal life is a mediator, someone who can bridge the gap between us and God, a priest, really. And Jesus is that priest. And he, listen, he is the only mediator between God and man. And so what this means for us today in the 21st century is that we should put not half, not 75%, not 95%, but 100% of the weight of our confidence and trust in the Lord Jesus for our salvation. Because he died for our sins to bridge the gap between us and God. And if you don't know Jesus, if you don't have a relationship with God, why not today? Why not trust in Jesus for eternal life today? Now, he, Jesus 
welcomes you to himself. He welcomes sinners to himself. Let's keep reading in 2 Samuel chapter 6, starting at the second part of verse 20. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. We're first introduced to Michael in this chapter back in verse 16. She looks out the window, she sees David dancing and celebrating, and she is just disgusted. And we can imagine her just seething, getting more and more worked up, just waiting for her husband David to come home, maybe practicing how she's going to ream him out. What a fool you made of yourself, dancing like that in clothes fit more for a beggar than for a king. How embarrassing. Not just to yourself, but to the, royal, the whole royal family. My father, Saul, would never have done this. Do you have no shame, David? And everyone was watching you. Don't you care what people think of you? David's response to Michael shows two things. Number one, God is making abundantly clear that the kingdom is being taken, removed from Saul and his line and being given to David and his line. David is God's chosen man. David's line is God's chosen line. Number two, David's worship is before the Lord. The phrase before the Lord is used no less than six times in this one chapter alone. And it is so important. These three words, before the Lord, are so important for our getting what real worship is all about. David is essentially saying to Michael, yeah, I took off my kingly robes and probably made a fool of myself and looked a bit like a bum in a linen ephod, but it was before the Lord. He doesn't really give a rip what people think of him. And he's not really even thinking about himself. He's, David is not an expressive individualist. He has an audience of one. In other words, he's a man of humility. Del Ralph Davis says this, David does not see himself so much as Israel's king, but as Yahweh's servant. And humility is appropriate for servants. For David's humility is dignity. Just take that in. To him, there is nothing servile about groveling before God. 
But David doesn't just have humility. He has passion. He has passion for God. He's alive to God. He's more alive to God than anything else in this world. He has spiritual life in his heart. How long has it been since we've been really moved by the Lord in our heart of hearts? I mean, really awake to his greatness, filled with joy in our hearts before the Lord. We need to contemplate seriously what W.G. Blakey said. He said this, There are doubtless times to be calm and times to be enthusiastic, but can it be right to give all our coldness to Christ and all our enthusiasm to the world? That one really struck me. Lord, help us. Lord, free us. Lord, renew us. So expressive individualism says, look inward, find the true you, and express your authentic self. God's word gives us better counsel. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Center your life with all your passion and joy and might on God. This is the pathway to true and lasting and even everlasting joy. Um, We're going to finish by reading Psalm 92. So let's read this psalm in unison. Read along with me. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night, to the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands, I sing for joy. Let it be so. Let's pray together.